go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this morning's scripture. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, may Jesus Christ be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So as we study the book of Leviticus, I think it's important for us to remember two things, all right? One, this is not a book about random commands or laws pertaining to religious practices. This is a book that is addressing a crisis within the life of Israel. Israel has come out of Egypt, and they are now preparing to enter the promised land. And as they prepare to enter into the promised land, this group of people needs to become the people that God has called them to be. Way back with Abraham, God singled out Abraham and said, your family is going to be my covenant people. They are going to be a priestly nation for the entire world. Okay, And so now we are, the people have been come out of Egypt, they're at Sinai, and they are becoming that priestly nation. Right? The giving of the laws at Mount Sinai was the beginning of the process whereby the Israelites become, become the covenant people of God who are a priestly nation. And this is the, the sermon, if you go back to uh, the first sermon of the series, you'll see that there's a whole bunch of things that begin to happen while the people are at Sinai that get in the way of the process. So one of the things that happens is they build the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is built. The glory of the Lord descends on the tabernacle, in the form of a cloud, and we're told at the very end of the book of Exodus that Moses and the people are looking at the tabernacle, seeing the cloud, and they cannot enter the tabernacle. This creates a crisis because up until this point, Moses has been able to go into the presence of God in the form of a cloud. Up on Mount Sinai, there's the part where Moses goes into the cleft of the rock and the glory of the Lord passes by. There's all these instances in which Moses has been in the presence of God, but suddenly, as the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle, even Moses can't. And the crisis is, who will mediate on our behalf? Who will go into the presence of God so that we, the people, can hear from God? And very generally, the question is, or the crisis is, is how can humans and God once again dwell together? This is how the book of Exodus ends. And Leviticus is the solution to the problem that the people face. Leviticus lays out the the ways in which the people can come into the presence of God. And so all of these commands and all of these laws are about that one thing. It's about bringing God and humanity together again. Second, We shouldn't just see these laws and commands as simply laws and commands, but we should see them as a broader part of a ritual. And and we defined ritual last, last week as a system of activities done in a particular order in order to achieve a goal, right? So there's all these activities that are done, like the killing of animals, the placing on the altar, all of these things are done 
in order to bring God and humanity together, in order for humans to be ready to hear from God, to be in his presence, or to be holy, as we talked about, uh, I forget if that was the first or the second week, maybe the second week, yes, where it's at-homeness with God. We talked about holiness as, as at-homeness with the divine or at-homeness with the sacred. So all of these rituals are done in this way. They're going to prepare the people, ready the people, let the people know, yes, now we can enter into God's presence. And we got into it last week with what these actually look like with the burnt offering. And this week we're going to look at another offering. So Leviticus chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it and put incense on it. And take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priests shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of the finest flour, either thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, or thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with olive oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of the finest flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of the finest flour and with some olive oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in food offering, any food offering presented to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil, together with all the incense, as a food offering presented to the Lord. All right. So, if you remember last week, we talked about the burnt offering, and we said that the burnt offering, that part of what the burnt offering was for was for the atonement of sins. It says that in the text, but we also said that it was more than just for the atonement of sin, but really the burnt offering was about the consecration of a whole person to God. And the way that we came to that conclusion by was... By, uh, the way in which we came to that conclusion was by looking at the activities of the ritual, so the different parts of it, the, the, the person themselves bringing forth an animal, placing their hand on the animal as a symbol of connecting the person to the animal, saying, this animal belongs to me, and not only does this animal belong to me, but this animal is a vicarious substitute for my 
worship. This, this animal represents me so that as this animal is burnt up and goes up into the presence of God, so I too am going up into the presence of God. This is the way in which I enter God's presence. I'm bringing this animal close so that I can come close, right? This is all that's happening in the burnt offering. Now, the grain offering worked a bit differently than the burnt offering of the animal. See, the burnt offering of the animal happened. Every part of the animal was put up on the altar and was consumed by the fire. The fat, the meat, the, the high, all of it ended up getting burned up. The grain offering, not so much. So if a person brought forward an offering of fine flour, and all that means it was flour that was ground up that could then be used in cooking, they would then take that, that uh, uh, flour, mix some olive oil in it. The priest then would take it all, but they take a portion of it, usually about a handful. I'm not sure if it was one handful or two handfuls. doesn't matter. They take a handful of it, then put some incense on it, and then they would place it into the fire. The rest of the flour was set aside for the priest, and it would be the food for the priest. The priest would have to eat it in the sanctuary. They were not allowed to take it home. Now, the incense that they would put on the, on, the, on the grain offering was frankincense, and it would come in sort of this gum resin kind of stuff. It was not edible. I know that much. It was not edible. And so you can read in the text, it says, put all of the incense on the part that goes on the altar. That's because if it went on the other part, the priest would not be able to eat it, right? Now, the amount of grain that was brought forward is not specified in the text. You probably note that. So I kind of scrounged around to see, well, how much grain are we talking about? How much flour are we talking about? And what I found is most scholars believe that it was about a tenth of an ephod, which is somewhat equal to three to five pounds of flour. So a pretty good amount of flour, right? And then out of that, a handful goes on the altar. The rest goes to the priest. Now, if the worshiper didn't want to bring just the flour, they could also bake it in a bunch of different ways. It sounds like, you know, they can make some unleavened bread, uh, what also sounds like pancakes on a griddle to me, uh, and some other things. And then they would take that and offer a portion of it on the altar, again, with oil, with the incense on it, and the rest would go off to the priest. We also get these restrictions in chapter 2 around what can't be in the grain offering. Two things. One, honey, which is most likely a fruit honey. So honey that's distilled from the nectar of fruit or from the juice of fruit. Or a uh, yeast. Now, no one really knows because the text doesn't say why yeast and honey are not allowed to on the altar at this point. What most people believe, though, is that the reason you couldn't put yeast or honey on, and again, it's fruit honey, on the altar is because both of these things uh, are, are, are surround the fermentation process. So yeast obviously helps things become fermented. If it's fruit honey, it could be subjected to fermentation over time, right? And what happens in fermentation? Things begin to break down, they begin to decay, they begin to corrupt, if you will, or they begin to die in particular ways. And so most believe that the reason that yeast or honey are not allowed on the altar is they are connected in some way with that which is corrupt, decayed, or dead. And so it is not an offering that is acceptable to the Lord. Then, after we have the commands of what not to include, we have the, include, the, the command to include salt which we'll come back to in just a little bit. And then we have some sayings about the first fruits, which we'll get to in like June or something like that. Now, 
The burnt offering is all about the consecration of a whole person. And again, we get that because of the particular ritual that's involved. We get some of that because of the atonement. It's an atonement for you. It says that. But when you read through the description of the grain offering and what is happening in the grain offering, what is not told to us is why. Like, there's no right reason. Like, it doesn't say, like, this is what this offering is supposed to do. It's for sins or it's for purification or it's for uh, reparations or anything like that. It doesn't say what this offering is all about. And so it's left to speculation. Some people believe that the offering is a poor man's offering. So if you were to look at the flow of Leviticus 1, you start with if you offer a bull, right? Something from the a cattle of some sort, which is a very expensive animal. Now, not everyone could afford, afford an offering like that. And so if you can't afford that, then maybe you can afford a, a, afford a lamb or a goat. But again, that's quite costly. So if you can't afford that, then you could offer a dove or a pigeon, right? There's these accommodations made so that everyone, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, can bring an offering to the Lord. And so a lot of commentators believe like that pattern just continues right into chapter 2. And when we get into chapter 2, it's like, okay, if you can't afford a pigeon or a dove, how about some flour? How about some bread that you already have cooked? How about, you know, and it's just making these accommodations so that people have an opportunity to bring something into the presence of God offer it and consecrate themselves saying, I am the Lord's and I am worshiping him by giving this offering, whatever it may be. And I think there's a very strong case for this being what the grain offering is all about. There's also instances throughout the text where we can see that the burnt offering and the grain offering do not have to be offered at the same time. That you can offer just a burnt offering, then go away. Or you can offer just a grain offering and then go away. We can see that in various places in the text. But, oftentimes, the burnt offering and the grain offering went together. Now, somebody would come forward and they would bring a bull or a goat or a pigeon or whatever it might be. It would get offered up on the altar. And then they would bring forward a grain offering, flour or unleavened bread or whatever it might be. Now, why were these two often done in connection with one another? Well, I think there's some clues in the text. So if you've got your Bibles open, look with me at Leviticus 1, verse 9. The very end of the verse. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now jump down to verse 13. Again, the very end of the verse. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Jump down to verse 17. Again, the very end of the verse. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now go to chapter 2, verse 2. The priest shall take a handful of flour and oil together with all of the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Jump down to verse 9. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Go to verse 16. We'll just read the last phrase. As a food offering presented to the Lord. So you can see there's this pattern over and over throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2. A food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. A food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So what's going on here? 
think, think about Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas. For us, the Thanksgiving, it always involves a turkey, right? You put the turkey, mom, whoever, gets a turkey all ready, brines it up real good. Morning of, they put it in the oven, and it begins to cook. And that smell begins to saturate the house, right? You can smell it from, and, and is anybody going, I mean, well, maybe there are some, but for most of us, it is like that is a good aroma. And then we sit down at the table, and we've got all the fixings there. You've got the, the, the turkeys all carved up, and it's beautiful, and it's piping hot. The steam's coming out of it. You've got all, you know, you got your, your sweet potatoes, and you got your green beans, and you got your mashed potatoes, and you got your stuffing. And if you want to come to a lunch, we have a lunch immediately after the service. <laughs> it's going to be over there. And then oftentimes, you have some sort of bread, right? You've got a roll, you've got a fresh-baked bread, or you've got some sort of grain. At our table, we have wine there, right? It's like a food offering, an aroma pleasing to mate. Yeah. These are food offerings. This is what the text tells us again and again and again. Every time it describes a different way in which the, sacrifice, the offering can come forward, it has that language, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. One Hebrew scholar says this, When the Hebrew ate flesh, he ate bread with it and drank wine. And when he offered flesh on the table of his God, it was natural that he should add to it the same concomitants which were necessary to make up a comfortable and generous meal. Maybe the, food, the burnt offering and the grain offering were offered together because... It's a meal. Remember what this whole thing is all about. How do humans and the divine dwell together? How do we, how do we experience at-homeness with God? Think about what makes you feel comfortable when you come into somebody's home. Right? You, you go into the, either, either maybe they're coming into your home or you're going to their home, doesn't matter. But typically when you have people over, right, you, you greet them. Help them take off their shoes or jacket or whatever it is. Maybe they leave their shoes on, whatever's comfortable, right? And you welcome them into the house and you want them to feel comfortable in your home. So you're like, can I get you anything to drink? Would you like some water? Would you like some tea? Would you like lemonade? Whatever it might be. And then you hopefully prepare, like if you're having them there for a meal, you prepare food and you prepare good food for them because there's something about food and there's something about being around the table that makes us at ease, that makes it uh, possible for us to kind of let our guard down just a bit so that we can have honest conversations, so that the, the relationship can get built between us. And, and if you are, know them at all, or maybe you don't know them, and so you ask, do you have any food allergies or food restrictions and all that, you prepare for them what it is that they like to eat. And you do that to to communicate to the person, I want you to feel as comfortable as possible in my home. And so God is saying to the people, I want you to feel at home with me. And I know that you're scared and I know you're terrified because you've seen all the things that I can do. You've seen the plagues in Egypt and you've seen the Red Sea part and you've seen it crash down on the Egyptian army and you've seen Mount Sinai and you've heard the thunder and, the, and seen the lightning. You've seen it and you are terrified with me, but I want you to feel at home in my presence. And so here's my table. It's the altar. Here's my table. Here's how I like it set. Here's what is pleasing to me. 
And if you do this, you don't have to worry about being in my presence, for I am happy. I am pleased, and you and I can share this table, this meal. We can enjoy each other's presence. But it wasn't just about a meal. You see, the ancients saw meals as a way of sealing a covenant with one another. If you think about a covenant, a covenant is a contract of some sort, right? It's a, it's a, it's a binding thing. It's a way of showing that we are in relationship with one another, that we support one another, that we will walk alongside one another, that we will be together to the end, right? And we can see that meals are a sign of covenant throughout the scriptures. So in Genesis chapter 26, verses 30 to 31, we see this, this meal as a sign of the covenant between Isaac and Abimelech. Isaac made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Not at and drank, ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. In Genesis chapter 31, verses 54, Jacob and Laban have a meal together as they establish the covenant to, between them. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father, Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there on the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And then in Exodus 24, after the Israelites have received the Ten Commandments, Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he came down from Mount Sinai, read the commandments to the people, and said, God wants to establish this covenant with us. These are the things that God is asking. And the people say, we will do all of these things. And as a response, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israelites. They saw God and they ate drank. Yeah. Meals were a sign of the covenant. They were a sign of what, saying, I am in relationship with you. But there was another element that went along with these covenant meals. You've got your food, you've got your meat, you've got your bread, you've got your wine, you've got whatever else may be served. But there was one other element that was extremely important for covenant meals. It was salt. There's a Neo-Babylonian letter that speaks of all who tasted the salt of the Yakin tribe. I don't know who the Yakins are, but what this is essentially saying is that these are our covenant allies. Those who have tasted the salt of this tribe are in a covenant relationship with the Yakin tribe. They are its allies. They are the ones who will support Yakin when they go into war. They are the ones who will help defend when they are attacked. They have tasted the salt of the Yakin tribe. The Persians talked about, like, if you were loyal to the monarch, loyal to the throne, you were one who had tasted the salt of the palace, right? The Greeks referred to salt as, a, as holy. Salt itself they saw as holy and was used in their covenant meals with one another. And then there's my personal favorite, which is Arab Bedouins, right? When they were, when they were reminding one another of the covenant, and this covenant would often say that we are going to support you and we are going to give aid to one another when it is needed. These Arab Bedouins would, would remind one another of the covenant that they had made with each other by saying, there's salt between us. Yeah. This practice was also done by the Jews. I mean, even in here, in Leviticus, we're told not to forget the salt when we bring an offering, and it's the what? It's the salt of the covenant. In Numbers 18, 19, whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt. 
before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Second Chronicles 13.5 Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Okay, so, so why was salt so important? Salt is, in our understanding, salt is a preservative, right? But the ancient souls salt is much more than just a preservative. They saw it as a sign of permanence. So yes, salt preserved things, and they understood that salt preserved things, but salt was able to preserve things because one of the properties inherent to salt was its permanence. So if you, so, so the way that they understood it is this. For them, at that particular time, they had no way to destroy salt, right? Put it in a fire, burn it, what do you get out? Salt. It could not be consumed by fire. Okay, well, we're going to wash the stuff away. Throw it into a bucket of water. Throw it into a lake. Throw, do whatever. What happens when the water evaporates? The salt's still there. They had no, like, okay, I got a big block of salt. Let's just cut it up as much as possible. Let's get it as small as possible. What does, what's still there? Salt. It still tastes salty. It still does the things that salt does. Salt, in their mind, was permanent. On top of that, I've got this meat and left on its own, it's going to spoil in a few days. But if I sprinkle salt on it, or even like sometimes you, like you do is you just make a pit, and then you pour salt in it, and then you put your meat in it, and then you pour more salt in it, right? It's just like in the salt, covered. What happens to the meat? Now all of a sudden it lasts not just days, but it lasts weeks, months, and sometimes even longer. Like this, it like... It transferred its properties of permanence into the thing. This thing that was corruptible, this thing that would decay, this thing that would fall apart and die and no longer be usable. Salt fixed that. Salt was a thing of permanence. It was a sign of permanence. And so when they included salt at their covenants, they said, this will last. This covenant is not going to fall apart. This covenant is not going anywhere. This covenant cannot be broken. Just as this salt is permanent, so is our relationship to one another. There's salt between us. For those of you who grew up in the church and have read a lot of the Bible, you got some, you got some whistles and bells going off in your head? So what does Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. Now, every time I've heard this preached, I've heard it preached along the lines of salt is a preservative, right? So we preserve culture, or salt makes taste, things taste better, so we make the world around us better. And yes, yes, we can talk about that, but you are the salt of the earth. And salt to the ancients was a sign of the covenant. It wasn't the covenant, and it wasn't the thing that made the covenant permanent, but it was a sign, it was a symbol, it was a reminder. You are the salt of the earth. You, you are a reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his only son in order to save it. You are a living symbol that God will not abandon his creation, but one day will restore all things. You are a living sacrifice that says to all of creation, all things will be made new, thus saith the Lord. You are the salt of the earth. This week... 
I watched as a church rallied around a family in need. I had more people contact me about bringing meals and doing childcare. I mean, it was hours, and we had two weeks' worth of childcare filled up. You are the salt of the earth. Family in our midst has just started fostering. And people have come around them and they have supported them and they have given them advice and they have provided for their needs. You are the salt of the earth. This week I'm meeting with pastors in this building to talk about how we as churches in Fishers can begin to come alongside of creation and care for creation and to implement and work towards that shalom that we talked about in the last sermon series. Last, week, or last, uh, last year when we talked about the, uh, how do we care for creation and how do we come alongside of creation, I threw out that idea of a community garden. Man, did you all respond to that. I've got a number of people who said, I want to be a part of that. I think we should do that. And it started the, the imaginations just rolling and people were like, oh, if we do that, then we could come alongside of these food pantries and we could do this and we could offer cooking classes and we do all of these different things. You are the salt of the earth. When you sit with another person and you listen to them, when you support those who are going through difficult times, when you lift up another person in prayer, when you go and pick up somebody and bring them to church because they can't get themselves there, when you defend the cause of the poor and the voiceless and the hurting and the poor and the looked down upon, you are the salt of the earth. Your good works are evidence to the, that the world needs to be reminded of the fact that God has established an everlasting covenant with it and will not abandon it. The covenant that promises that God will never leave you or forsake you. The covenant that promises that God will redeem the lost. The covenant that promises that God will reconcile all things back to himself. The covenant that promises that justice and mercy will flow like a river. The covenant that promises that one day God will make all things new. When the world wants has God abandoned us? God points to you and me and says, look, look at my children. Look at the first fruits that I have brought forth through Jesus Christ. Look at their good deeds. Look at my agents of reconciliation. Look at the peacemakers. Look at those who are pure in heart. Look, there's salt between us. You are the salt of the earth. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, One day all Christians will join in a doxology and sing God's praises with perfection. But even today, individually and corporately, we are not only to sing the doxology, but to be the doxology. The doxology is nothing other than an offering of praise. You are to be a living sacrifice, a holy aroma pleasing to the Lord. You remind the world that God continues to say there's salt between us. I will not walk away. These things that I have promised to do, I will do. The relationship that I have established is permanent. You, you are the salt of the earth. Let's pray.
Father, we know that our good works do not save us. We know that our good works do not earn us a special place in your heart. But rather, we are a people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ has atoned for our sins. And in that act, we become more than we are. We become evidence of your goodness and grace. We become witnesses to the salvation that Christ has won for us. And from a place of gratitude, we become living sacrifices. May we be the doxology. May we be the offering of praise. And so may it begin as together we sing our praises to you.